Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So normally uh, what I like to do here is I like to do uh, a, some kind of, tell some kind of story that's sort of like some kind of relationship in some way to my guest who is Sarah Siegel Magnus, who I'm very excited uh, about having here, uh, uh, an incredible producer with... Uh, Academy Award roots, and when you think of the Academy Award, you just think of like the you know the highest. I just think of myself when I was a kid in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, and there's two things that I wanted to watch when I was a kid in front of my black and white television with the rabbit ears and the and the pliers that I would have to just turn one way or the other to get the channel the right way. Um, it was The Wizard of Oz, whenever that would come on, uh, whatever part of the year was on CBS, and it would be once a year, and you just gear for that. And then there was the Academy Awards, and you'd always want to watch it. And for me, one of the things that I always loved most about the Academy Awards, which is very strange, uh, it moved me, was that montage that they've had from the beginning of time of all the people that have passed away. I always loved watching those clips and seeing that. I know it sounds kind of morbid, but it, it was just, I, I just, it, it was just a fascinating thing because there was never any sound and the audience was silent and you got to see the star quality of the people that were there. And I've always found in the comedy business, uh, 
I love when somebody sends me a link of their comedy. I love to turn off the sound and just watch the first two minutes. And if I feel this thing in my heart that this person has star quality, then I'll then I'll turn it up. But the story that I want to tell um, is kind of an interesting story. And one of the things for a comedian normally is to do the Letterman show. Um, that's the biggest thing, even today, you, even as relevant as Fallon and Kimmel are, if they were sitting next to me, they would say they would want to do Letterman. When they go on Letterman, they're giddy. They just, they, they love it. But there was one thing that every comic really wanted to figure out how to do, and it was one of the most difficult things in the world to do. And that was to do the Oprah Winfrey show. And as a comic, if you could get on the Oprah Winfrey show, that was like 10 Lettermans. But it was one of the most difficult things to do. And, you know, I represented Dane Cook for 17 years. And one of his goals, always, he had always very lofty goals. It was amazing, his goals. I'll never forget if you're out there and you're listening, one of the things that's truly amazing is when you set goals for yourself and you put them in writing and you have them in front of you all the time because it's a, it's a thought process of what you can do. And I remember the first time I went to his apartment at the La Fontaine, a famous place, a fountain in Crescent Heights where Steve Martin lived and John Belushi lived and Bette Midler when they came to town. And he had this apartment, and I remember he said, just give me a minute, I'm going to go in the other room. And I was sort of standing next to this little office where he had his stuff. And I noticed from afar there were all these post-it notes all over the place, all over the shelves and everything like that. And I guess I was a little nosy, and I sort of poked my head in, and I sort of lifted up one of the post-it notes and said, I'm going to do my own HBO comedy special. And then I'd lift up another post-it note, I'm going to be the star of my own movies. Look at another post-it note, I'm going to do the Letterman show. And there were all these things. And one of the things, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was I'm going to do the Oprah Winfrey show. But it never happened because no matter how hard, as a manager, as an agent, you try to get somebody on Oprah... They don't give a shit. They don't care. They don't need you. No one, Oprah Winfrey does not need you. She doesn't need you at all. She, she doesn't need to have comics on. But finally there was this opening where I heard they were trying to put together this comedy hour thing with three comedians. Pitch Dane and, uh, with his team and sure enough got the call. We're going to bring him in. He's going to do it. And so I'm like really excited, uh, and uh, and then I find out there's two other comedians that are going to do the show with him. It's going to be George Lopez and Monique. And so um, it's a really great thing, but as a manager, all I'm thinking now is all I care about is one thing. How am I going to get Dane Cook to be the first guest out? Because he does an impression of Oprah in his act, in one of his stand-up specials, and I knew if I could get him out there first, because the ratings are the biggest up front, that that would be the biggest hit for him. And so I was lobbying, trying to figure out, showing him clips of him imp- impersonating her, 
And then I got the call, he's going to open up the show, which was great. And he did great, and it was wonderful. And the thing I wanted to share with you, Sarah uh, Siegler Magnus, a producer of Precious, is that it was like a military operation when you got to Oprah. There were producers coming into the room and telling you things that you could not do. Everything was what you could not do. Don't say this to Oprah. Don't do this to Oprah. Don't do this. But the biggest thing three producers came in and said in a span of 30 minutes, do not plug anything. Do not promote anything. Do not, you know, do things, anything to show where you are or what you're doing. That's Oprah's job. If she wants to promote you, she'll promote you. If she doesn't, she won't. You're on the show. You should be grateful you're on the show. Do not promote anything. And then I took the person aside. Are you going in every dressing room three times? I said, yes, we are. We're going in Lopez's dressing room. We're going in Monique's dressing room. So Dane had a lot of stuff to promote. He was doing this tour or whatever, but he didn't promote anything. Lopez goes on. He kills. He doesn't promote anything. Monique goes on, Oprah announces, I'm executive producing a movie called Precious. It's going to be coming out in about you know six months or so. And this is one of the stars in the movie, Monique. Monique comes out. Oprah finishes her interview with Monique. She says, and we're going to be right back after. And when Oprah says after, Monique says, wait a second, Oprah, wait a second. My kid's got to go to college. And she reaches her hand into her dress by her boob and her bra, like way in, like deep, deep in under boob stuff, and pulls out perfume. This is my new perfume. I got a new perfume that I'm selling. It's beautiful. Here, smell this, Oprah. Smell this, whatever. And it's and Oprah's just like the look on her face is like, what is happening here? This is this is craziness. She starts spraying the stuff around, and Oprah's trying to go to commercial. And she just violated the whole code. <laughs> and um, they're about to go to commercial. And there had been an author that Oprah had promoted beforehand for the book club. And Dane was holding the book. And <laughs> Monique's going crazy. You got to promote it. Oprah's trying to sign off. Dane is just reading the book in a corner of the director's chair, just pretending nothing's happening. And George Lopez grabs the perfume from Monique and is running through the crowd spraying, buy my perfume, buy my perfume, buy my perfume. And I thought to myself at the time, if you're an artist, there's times when you have to say to yourself, when do I break the rules and when do I not break the rules? When do I take the risk to do something and when don't I? And to me, immediately, right then and there, that was a red flag that this woman was going to get her opportunity. She was going to show her talent and do great. But as they say with homicide detectives and murderers, sooner or later, they all fuck up. And has been proven throughout the process of Precious and the process of the Academy Awards and the press, and I'm going to have my husband talk with me here, and then I'm not going to talk and talk to this person and the drama surrounding it and everything and all the craziness that you showed the world. Well, what happens? You do an Academy Award winning performance and then it's five years later 
and you're not working. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me. Very exciting podcast today. This uh, This kind of episode is the reason why... I wanted to do this podcast because I think uh, the story that you're about to hear will be very, very inspiring. Uh, my guest today, my special guest today, Sarah Siegel Magnus, I want to tell you a little about her. She's a co-founder along with her husband, Gary, and managing partner of a company called Smokewood Entertainment. And um, she has amazing credits, uh, but you know, we'll start with Precious, which was based on the novel Push by Sapphire, which... Uh, I think I had six Academy Award nominations and two wins, which is incredible. She also um, executive producing the critically acclaimed feature, Tennessee. Recent projects are, she's a graduate of the University of Colorado. Uh, She had a brief career in the music industry, which we're going to talk about. She also launched a clothing line for young women called Solo, I believe. She's also started writing and directing movies. Um... And uh, she's directing a movie called Crazy Kind of Love and also directing the movie called Castro's Daughter. We have a lot to talk about, so many things. I look at her across from me before I introduce her, and she is a force of nature. I can feel it. Please welcome my guest, Sarah Siegel Magnus. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. You make me sound so good. I think I'm going to carry you in my pocket. <laughs> Please. That <laughs> Everywhere would, I go. <laughs> that would be an improvement in the pockets I've been carried in. Uh, 
So let's start from the beginning. I always like to start way, 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 way back where you just are whatever you're doing, let's say a month or so or a year or so before you even have any comprehension or idea that you're going to be in this business. What are you doing? I think my first experience with Hollywood, um, my dad started a company called Celestial Seasoning. So I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, a hippie town. And he had this company that a lot of Hollywood starlets loved because they loved the tea. It was like, you know, the hippie days. And Susan St. James um, took me- Heart to heart, Susan St. James? Well, no, she was on, uh, well, I mean, she's a big star from a long time ago. I don't think she was on Heart to Heart. She was on Kate and Allie and a bunch of other shows. But she invited my father and I, my father was actually doing Merv Griffin. Wow. And then, um, because he used to do a lot of talk show tours because people loved his story. And she invited us to go on the set of MASH when I was in fifth grade. And I remember thinking this town was the coolest place on earth. Now the set of MASH, the television series, not the movie. That's right. And we were hanging out with Alan Alda and the whole crew. And I just remember vividly thinking, wow, this is a really interesting place. I call my producer Radar. Yeah. Sarah. Remember that? That was so long. I mean, that that show was amazing. She looks a little better than he does. Yeah. (laughs) But um, so you're on the set of Mash, a single Mash. camera, brilliant, amazing, Emmy award winning show with the greatest actors in the world. And Susan was so cool, and I I think I got the buzz uh, back then to want to be in this business. Now explain to me because I don't remember what her role was with Mash. Oh, she well, she was just on it. She was doing a she doing a, a guest star, a guest star, right? Got but it. um. It was just like the best and most interesting experience of my life. And you can understand, I came from a small town in Colorado and going to a huge Hollywood set. I just thought, wow, this town is amazing. Um, and, and you're in fifth grade. Fifth grade. So, but I, I always had it in my brain that maybe one day I'd end up out here. Um, even in college, I thought, oh, I need to be an actress. So I took an acting class in college. And I remember. It was my turn to do the monologue, and I nearly threw up and couldn't do it, and then quit. <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't do that, and I think um, my father's friends with Norman Lear, so I was going to work on one of his shows during the summer, and then that didn't go through, so I thought, oh, I'm never going to make it to Hollywood. So I went to business school. Um, and then and where did you go to business school? University of Colorado. Got it. And then in, during that process, I went to work for a record company, and I thought I was going to end up in New York being CEO of a record company. And the record company was? EMI Records. EMI. And what were some of the artists that, oh my gosh. that were being signed around the time that you were working there? Well, that we, became had a, big? we had a lot of catalog people, too, like Pat Benatar and mm-hmm. Billy Idol. And um, we had a guy named D'Angelo back then and David Gray, more developing artists, so I had a really great time working there for a long time. Moved to New York City after college to go work there and then had sort of a breakdown and decided I couldn't live in the concrete jungle. Now, when you say a breakdown, that could mean a lot of things no, to people. No, well, a, a career breakdown. A career breakdown. Yeah. And I, I had been living in New York during the summers and thought, this is the place for me. But then when I actually moved there, coming from a place with mountains and you know, skiing and lots of out- outdoor activities. I thought I can't do it, so I moved back to Colorado. Got it. And I was still uh, very young, figuring out what I wanted to do. But something in business, I always wanted to start my own business or you know be an entrepreneur. Now lots how, and lots of companies. So there. you go back to Colorado. How are you making a living then? 
Well, I mean, at that point, I was sort of taking a break. Got I mean, it. I went, I moved home, actually. So you moved home <laughs> with your parents. Yeah, I did. And, and were they still together at the time? No, well, my parents divorced. And so... When you were how old? 12. 12. But then they both remarried, been married forever. Now, that's a, that's a bone-crushing age for your parents to get divorced, which explains why you're such an amazing artist. Oh, well, thank you. Well, because I mean, normally when you go through something like that, it like it blows a hole through you and all through your life you're trying to figure out a way to prove yourself and do the things the great things you know you can do and and then you do those things and it fills the hole and you're like wow this is i feel pretty good and then the next day you wake up and you're like oh shit the hole's still there and so that's so that's interesting that 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 happened to you and and uh, I'm getting more of a vision of things but oh. keep going well the funny thing is that um all three of us kids from the original marriage um have been with I've been with my husband 16 years my brother's been with his wife 25 years and my sister's been with her husband since she was 14 none of us are divorced and all of us are in serious long-term marriages I wanted to ask you about that because uh-huh. I this is something I, I want your opinion on that has nothing to do with what we're talking about okay but for those in our audience they know that I often go to these places <laughs> so what do you think is more pressure for a person getting married? Is it more pressure getting married knowing that your parents have been together for 30 years? Or is it more pressure getting married knowing that your parents are divorced? Oh, my gosh. In other words, for, for the thought process of moving forward. I don't think I, I ever thought that way. I mean, I met my husband when I was 24 years old. He's 20 years older than me. God bless you. There's hope for me. I know. I fell so (laughs) in love with him and, I mean, literally been together ever since. Because they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with him. Could you tell us about that first meeting? Like what what, what happened that you knew like instantly? His best friend was dating my friend. And so we actually met, but not in a setup or anything like that and we became friends and then his best friend told me he had a crush on me and then I should ask him on a date and I'm like I'm 24 I'm not getting married to a guy 20 years older than me the and, guy asked you to ask yes. him on a date because he was scared to ask you but the funny thing is is after three months of being friends with him my best friend said you're in love with him I'm like how could I be in love with this guy we never have been on a date so crazy thing is like I did end up asking him on a date he couldn't go then he asked me on a date um, and I couldn't go. And then we finally went on a date and literally, okay, kids out there, I was pregnant three months later. Don't do what I did. Wow. But, and then we got married. So, um, you know, our relationship completely untraditional in the sense that we, it's just different. Uh, you know, the beginning of it is very different, but it, it's worked. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so I want you to put a pin that. Just go back. You're living at home. Yeah. <laughs> now, what happens? What's going on? Like, what? What do you? How do you get your feet? Your head to break down. You're living at home. What's the next step? Well, I mean, I basically was looking at all the opportunities and realizing having uh, a business degree didn't really help you, and that everybody coming out of college was making no money. It was very frustrating. Um. So, anyways, I mean, I I think I got a sort of menial job to to figure it all out. And then I met my husband. So then I got married and I thought, okay, one day I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And what was he doing at the time that you were married? Was he um, doing okay in his career? What was his career? And, 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 
and what was he doing that uh that because a lot of times also in relationships i always say this they're very similar to the business because mm-hmm. if you and you'll jump over the table here or the couch and strangle me but i find mm-hmm. that most women want number one thing on the top of the food chain is feeling safe yeah and it all leads to everything, you know, whether it's, you know, don't leave the seat up at four o'clock in the morning. So when I go to the bathroom, I fall into when I call Chicago at that hotel that you said you were at and they say there's nobody by this name. I don't want that to happen either. I want my anniversary to be remembered. So obviously you got pregnant in three months and got married because you felt safe. Yes. So what was it about his life and his career that that made you feel that kind of comfort level without getting into too many details? Well, oddly enough, his father was a big Colorado entrepreneur too, and our parents knew each other. But since he was 20 years older than me, I, I mean, and he was married before me, we never, our parents knew each other, but he and I never would have met. Or we would have met and probably... You know, I would have been a child and he was an adult at the time. So our our parents did know each other and we did have similar. I mean, I think my my actually I do remember when I was 16, my father went on a charity like scavenger hunt and we won. My husband's parents were in the cable business and um, we won a horse from his father. And my dad came home. We want a horse, but we're not taking it. And I remember throwing a fit. You got a horse and we don't get to keep it. So, and that was his father's horse. Wow. And you know why they didn't, why they didn't take the horse? Because anybody will tell you this in, in the world. You can literally get a horse anywhere in the world for free. Yes. Anyone will give you a horse. Because the maintenance on a horse is way more expensive. <laughs> than the horse. Yes. Okay, so yeah, my dad's too smart for that. <laughs> now, when you rolled home with a hey, mom, dad, guess who's coming to dinner? I'm bringing Gary, uh, a friend of mine who I, you know, sort of have a relationship with. And we're going to have a baby. I'd like it to be, uh, he's 24 years older 20. than me. 20 years older yeah. than me. Were they, were they happy? Were they pissed off? Were they... Well, an, another odd sort of turn of events is that when I graduated from University of Colorado, the only company my father wanted me to work for was Gary's father's company, TCI Cable. So, wow. I mean, I remember him bugging me for two years. You have to go in and take an interview there. So, I mean, I think our our paths would have crossed. And I think my dad was probably hesitant because he was 20 years older, but also happy because he knew his family and... Um, they actually, they're very close in age, my parents and my husband, which has been awesome for me because I know when my husband comes home, my parents and Gary can talk about everything. So it did, it worked out, but it's, you know, 20 years age difference is not good for everyone. But for yeah. me, I, it, it well, worked. Fate is a strange thing because you had the horse and then the cable job. That's so mm-hmm. weird. So you guys were destined to be together, but he was in the cable business. Yes. All right. So you meet and then, so tell me, tell me the next uh, chapter of your life. What happened? Well, I had a baby, very exciting. Mm-hmm. And about three months after I had my daughter, I was like, I need to start a company. I'm bored. I mean, I love my daughter, love being a mother, but I'm ready for my next chapter. And thankfully, I have a husband who's very supportive. And I started my clothing company. Now, where did that vision come from? Well, this is kind of a crazy story, but I will tell you. My company now competes with Lululemon, but when I began... Which is, had, a, which is the most one of the most successful uh, um, companies on the stock market right now. Right. right. Yeah, we're in a really good position right now, but... Um, 
I wore these low-rise jeans called Frankie B, which were the hottest jeans on the planet. I remember them. Yes. I, I had many dreams about those jeans. That, yeah, very cute. But one of the things that I saw when I wore them and saw on other people was that women's underwear hung out of the pants, and I thought it was so unsightly. So I thought that was the goal. Not to see your underwear. So, Re- wait, t- time out here. I really, as a guy, like I must no. be, I must be functionally retarded. No, I always thought a girl loved to show that part of her no, underwear no, no. when she wore Frankie B's, and that was the whole style. Nope. So I actually made for myself a pair of low-rise underwear that you wouldn't see when you wore those jeans. And then what happened? I was my company was the first one to do that. Um, and I just thought, okay, if I make these for myself and I give them away and nobody buys them, fine, because then I'll be happy. But turned out every hot store in L.A. wanted them, and then we started the trend of low-rise. Now, you know, Victoria's Secret came right to me probably three months after that. Tons of really hot boutiques picked them up. And then about six months into the business venture, I realized that I could sew a hoodie that I could retail for $80 at the same price as sewing a pair of underwear. And so it didn't make sense for me to make those anymore because I could make so much more money with, you know, sort of uh, active wear. Now, was the underwear, not to get too personal, was it regular yeah. underwear? Was it thongs? Yeah, thongs. Yeah. Only thongs. Well, actually, we did some other, we made like boys briefs that were low and we did a, we did all sorts of them. But I figured it out really quickly after Victoria's Secret came to me that this is a hot little item. This is so fast. I always wondered <laughs> I always wondered as a guy, you know, as a guy, like for me, like on a beach, I could have like the most, you know, form-fitting shorts or bathing suit or whatever, and I sit on the beach, and I'm always thinking to myself as I'm sitting up, am I a plumber right now from the back? What's happening? You will look out on the beach, there's women all over the place with the tiniest little bikinis, and they're always sitting up, nothing, nothing. It's always right there. It's almost like there's like some magic thing that tells the material okay you got to sneak up to that point and then that's good yeah i don't know how that happens the same with skirts it's like women's skirts it's always a woman could be wearing a short skirt or a mini dress and it's always you i never you never see it go past a certain point you always wonder how that's possible well you need to hang out in the supermarkets of la because you'll see some of that all right you're right i gotta (laughs) get in there so you start the clothing company so you're doing really well and so clothing well, company and don't, movies don't right. really go together. No. So I did that. And then um, I continue to do that. That's another one of my side companies. And then probably, let's see here. But it wasn't a side company at the time. It was your company. It was. It was my main business. But we still lived in Colorado. So I was commuting back and forth to L.A. And my husband said, I'll never live in Beverly Hills ever. And I was like, oh, geez. So I'm just going to be a commuter for the rest of my life. Then cut to... I get a phone call one day from um, Lee Daniels, one of Lee Daniels, um, you know, finance guys. And he said, I read an article because I did a lot of press with my company. I read an article about you and I think you and Lee would be great friends. We're looking for funding for this movie. And I remember calling my husband. I'm like, I don't want to be in the movie business. I know nothing about the movie business. This sounds crazy. And so we set the meeting up and he canceled. I was like, yep, see, I shouldn't be in that business, so I forgot about meeting it. Meeting in Colorado or L.A.? In L.A. The meeting was in L.A., and since I was here all the time, but I was here for my clothing business, 
um, he canceled and I was like, oh, well, well, I don't need to be in that business anyway. I mean, I wasn't really even pumped. I didn't know who Lee Daniels was. Now, Lee Daniels claimed the fame before that was he produced Monsters yes. Ball and a, a film that I actually... Uh, it was an amazing film with, I believe, Kevin Bacon called The Woodsman. Yeah, he did. Um, and because I know I was trying to produce a, a movie called Fair Hope USA about a child molester. Yes. And that came out and uh, it was right. amazing. And so he's always done these edgy kind of unique kind of films that have that uh, point of view that keeps you on the edge of your seat with real life stuff. So. Well, he was a manager before that. So he was in the business, but in a completely different um, you know, job. But the funny thing is, is maybe a year before that, I had had this notion in my mind that I needed to watch Monsters Ball and I always wanted to watch. I never had. So before I get this call and then one day I watched it and then the, the call came in. So I'm like, well, he's talented. This is not going to happen. Whatever. Fine. And actually the, the best part about it was I said to my husband, I'm sure he saw a picture of me and thought I was hot. <laughs> which everyone out there listening is hilarious because Lee is um, not into me in any way because he doesn't. By the way, and I'm not, <laughs> uh, and I'm not uh, saying flirting with a married woman here. I'm just saying what she's saying is she's she's lying there for the first time because she's she's a very beautiful. Woman. Oh, thank you so much. But no, he um, actually is gay, and he was not, <laughs> he was definitely not into me. So we kind of had a laugh about that. Um, Later on, I was laughing about that. I told him the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oddly enough, three months later, I get another call. Sarah, we're on set. We're about to do this movie called Tennessee with Mariah Carey, who, by the way, I'd been a huge fan of my entire life. Like, eighth grade, blasted her music, thought she was just amazing. So he's like, please, you and your husband, come down to set. We need blah, blah, blah amount of money. There's another investor involved. They'll talk to you about it. Just so in other words, they started production for Tennessee and they were, they, the, they the lost. The investor fell out. As they started. Yeah, well, they were a week away from shooting and wow. Mariah was about to leave, take off because her management was like, forget it. You don't have the money. We're out of here. So um, the great story is that they were shooting in New Mexico, which of course is very close to Colorado. So we, I said, listen to my husband, Gary, let's fly over there go see what they're doing and meet this guy, Lee Daniels. So we go there and Lee, who is probably one of the most astute salesmen on the planet, grabs Mariah, pushes her bodyguard aside and puts my husband, our lawyer and myself in the closet with Mariah. So she could pour her heart to us and tell us why she's doing this movie for no money when she's a superstar. And I got to say after that, five minutes in the closet, we were like, we're in. Cause I just, I mean, when you, when you hear from the star of a movie, who's not making any money, that they are completely vested in this film and this project and this producer, you know, that's what sells something to me. And I agree with you, but then, you know, in my mind, another thing comes into play, which if I were you, I would be asking myself after I got out of the closet, <laughs> which is, um, Mariah, um, you're a cajillionaire. Why aren't you writing a check to finance the entire movie? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if when you learn more about this business, you realize that people who finance their own films that are stars don't have any credibility. 
So who, somebody was advising her smartly saying don't put, she said she wanted to put the money in, but Lee said no, because you're not going to have any credibility. And she had had that complete failure um, glitter. So she, you know, she just really wanted to make her comeback. So what you're saying is in, in Hollywood, there is not one shred of evidence for anybody who's a star financing their own projects and winning. No, I, I'm not saying that there could be definitely that, but I think it's um, few and far between. And if you do it, you do it silently because it's, I mean, it's great. You want to back yourself, but at the same time, it convolutes everybody's um, investment in the film. It's confusing. It then becomes her trying to make her own money back and rather than her trying to give a great performance. So You know it, what's so fascinating about that concept <clears throat> is that the new world of media is the antithesis of that where there are artists that have millions and millions and millions and millions of views who a lot of us don't even know their names who if we were to walk with them with a traditional star through a casino in Vegas, they would be the last to leave because so many people would be stopping them. And they finance and they, they finance every piece of content they do, which has made them a star and made them millions of dollars. Yet in the traditional world, there's some kind of negative stigma to that. Well, I think once you're a star and you want to go do that, I mean, because people get greedy, they, you know, they win an Oscar and they're like, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to go do it myself, which my husband and I can, we're an example of that as well. <laughs> you, you see, you can do it and then you want to go do it yourself. Um, and in that case, I understand, but it doesn't, um, it, 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 if you just made a failure of a movie and literally glitter was, you know, if you go to the to a DVD store, it's in the worst movies ever made section. With Gilio or whatever yeah. it's called. Was that, mean, how do you pronounce that movie? Which one? The one with Ben Affleck and... Uh, oh, with J-Lo. Was it Gilio or... But see there, there's a perfect example of, of the interest of the actors in the film went way beyond making the movie. They were in a relationship trying to... I mean, yeah, so you she, know what I'm saying. So you left the closet and your left husband and your husband and you get in the car and you drive away and you say to yourself, I'm like, I want to hang out with Mariah Carey. I mean, that really is the truth because the movie, I mean, it was, I, I'm very proud of the movie because it was visually beautiful. But the truth is at the end of the day, people did not want to see her on screen for two hours. Got it. And so, and so without divulging the yeah. amount of money you put in. Sure. Let's say the movie, uh, the budget in the movie was $100. Yes. In that scenario, how much money out of $100 did you have uh, to put in? Oh, we put it, We put in about 80% of the money. 80%. In the film. Yeah, and we made no, um, 10% back. We lost, lost our butts in that Got movie. It. So, but, you know, fate would have it. I believed in Lee from that minute. I just, I loved him. And but this is what's amazing about you and your and your husband. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, normally in life, you, you know, you, you, you put your hand on the stove one time and then you never do it again because it's painful and you realize what you did and you see the stove and when it's on, you don't put mm -hmm. your hand over there. Maybe, and so you put your hand in the stove uh, everybody says the movie business is brutal. 
you didn't listen to those people because you were hanging around with Mariah Carey. That's and right. Who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want to hang out with Mariah right. Carey? <laughs> and so you go in and you lose a significant yeah. amount of money, and then, like literally, like a year or two later, you're back putting your hand on the stove. Well, and I think what happened is I ended up spending so much time on set, loved the process. And Lee and I, um, we just connected spiritually. Um, I loved his process. I just believed in him. I can't explain. It's one of those things we were meant to meet. And then he said... Like your husband. Yeah, it's true. So after we finished filming that movie... Uh, my husband and I said, let's make another movie, Lee. And Lee went through. He wanted to direct his next movie. And he had directed Shadow Boxer with Helen Mirren. Didn't do well, but it, I thought it was a, an amazing movie. So I knew he could do it. So not only are you betting on a guy yeah. who in his last project lost money for you, but now he wants to do another role, yeah. which you know that there's other people who have more experience mm -hmm. in but you can't go to him and say, look, you know, we're writing a check. Could you maybe just step aside and let's have somebody who's directed like 10 films that we could get do this? Well, when you look at the subject matter, um, Precious, and you know Lee Daniels, I mean, he is from that neighborhood. He, he knows that story as well as the person who wrote it. So it wasn't hard to understand why a human being like Lee could make a film like that because he told me that when he read the book Push, he slept with it under his pillow for three months. And then the funny thing is Mariah Carey told me, she said, Sarah, I've never, I don't read, but I read Push and it's, I loved that book. And then I did a little more research and found out that some of my white friends who had gone to astute colleges had read the book in college and had loved it. So that was kind of the beginning of me getting the feeling that this could be a universal story. And so when when Lee uh, wrapped his head around doing it as a movie, mm -hmm. had it been adapted as a screenplay yes. yet? It had been around about, he had been trying to make it for quite some so time. So he had hired um, Jeffrey, it, Fletcher. Jeffrey Fletcher, mm -hmm. who won the Academy Award for adapting it. Yes. He'd hired him to write mm -hmm. it or probably did an if-come deal where he didn't probably pay him, but if things went well, he would make money, which yeah. is something every artist should look at when they look at that story. But so anyway, so you rally around this. Your husband mm -hmm. say, you know, this is special. We want to do this. You make the commitment, but mm -hmm. there's nobody, uh, there's no studio that was financing it at the no, time. No, and, and we, the funny thing is we had approached a number, I knew... I knew this movie was special. And even when we were making it, I knew there was something very special about it. And we had gone, the funny story is, I mean, there's so many funny stories about this movie, but, um, you know, my husband's in the cable business and we had gone to, I'm going to make some people mad, but I'm going to tell the truth. We had gone to stars and said, Hey, we have this movie, Tennessee, you should pick this movie up. And then we're making another movie right now. You would love it. So Lee and I and my husband go pitch the CEO of Stars Entertainment at the time. And he, you know, Lee was the worst at pitching Precious. Well, here's the thing. This guy was very polite and kind because of Gary, my husband, and their relationship with Stars. And he said, you know, well, um, you should talk to our DVD department. So I was like, okay. So, but we'll connect you with the guy who's running our film department and maybe he'll take a look at your footage. So 
we end up getting him on the phone and the guy's like, I don't want to see a movie about a, a overweight, you know, African-American <laughs> girl who gets molested by her parents. Cause that's really how Lee sold it. Lee was the worst. He would just sell it like no spin on it. Not ma- you know, not there are universal themes of literacy. That's how <laughs> I did it. Like I had my whole spin on it. Lee was just like, she's fat and being molested. It's a great movie. You got to get it. <laughs> so I would come behind him and try to like finesse the situation. Well, you know, and I'd tell the story about my friends reading the book and you know how everybody's experienced something like precious. And it was just funny. We were kind of a funny team. Um, this, the guy at the film department was Chris Albright. Chris Albrecht. Or Albrecht, yes. And he was so rude to me, hung up the phone on me, basically wouldn't take a meeting with me. Nothing was like, I don't want to see your film. I don't care about it. We're done. Now, he had just come to uh, yes. to Liberty, Stars, a, stars yeah. after HBO, mm-hmm. correct? Yes. So, in fact, this was normal for me and Lee. And we would have our, like, um, moments after all these conversations where we'd be like, we know this is special. Lee, this is special. Don't feel why bad. Why do you think he was rude to you? Because, well, I mean... I mean, this is a guy I'll who developed why. The Sopranos. He developed, uh, you know, Entourage. He did The Wire. I mean, the guy... I know. Because on the surface, and this film was hard to chew. Anybody, in, if I had walked in any studio's studio head's office in this town, they would have shut the door on me because it was completely outside the box. And, you know, they just... They but but in, in fairness, in a way, this is yeah. a great discussion. This is what's odd about this business. No one would say that Chris Albrecht doesn't think outside the box. Okay, well, he was not nice to me, and I was and so, so upset. I mean, honestly, I was like, I've never had anybody talk to me so rudely, hang up the phone, won't take a meeting. I'm like, listen, let me fly there and get five minutes of your time, show you some of the scenes from this movie that we're doing. Persistence. Oh, he, Did he, you get in the room with him? No, I didn't. He would not even talk to me. Cut to Sundance later. We win Sundance, and he's trying to buy the movie. Now, tell me about that meeting. Uh, I didn't. I didn't meet with well, him. Well, I'm sure he came and said hello or something. Nope, we never talked. I've never spoken to him since. But I. Re- I so you didn't say, "Listen, go fuck yourself." No, you didn't do no, this. No, we did. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't have to say that to him directly. We just were laughing, like when he was trying to, you know, we had Weinstein, we had everyone wanting the movie at the time, um, and but I remember that story because it really fueled my fire to never back down with um something i believe in and so i feel like that was a blessing for me because that happens every day in this town and you just have to stick with your gut and you know believe in yourself and so which is which what's amazing is that this is what's fascinating for our audience you stuck with your gut with tennessee and your gut deceived you but where your gut didn't deceive you is hey I'm forming relationships here, just like you formed a relationship in the beginning with your husband before you even knew that you had a relationship with right. him from the horse mm-hmm. and getting a job in the cable thing. Here, you were you you found Lee Daniels, and there was something about him. Well, they found me actually. <laughs> they found you, but there was something about him that made you feel safe. Yeah, it's and, true. And, and so, take me through the 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 process of the, when you when you set up the budget for the movie i believe mm-hmm. the eventual budget of the movie was around 10 million dollars or something like that but 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 it rose to 10 million plus. or something plus <laughs> um and but the the first budget of the movie that the line producer did was what eight eight great and so 
take me through i'm not going to get into the financing and forget about that for right now because that that we already talked about that but take me through the casting process obviously because of his relationship with mariah Mm -hmm. he was gonna you and and him were gonna find something for mariah so mariah didn't have to read for a role you just found a role for and i remember when i saw precious I'm like thinking to myself, what is Mariah Carey doing in this movie? It was almost like when I watched Slim Blade and I saw John Ritter in the movie, I'm like, and Dwight Yoakam, I'm like, what are these people doing in the movie? Well, Lee's like king of that. And yeah, and so, but I didn't know that at the time Mm -hmm. and I wasn't thinking that way or I just wasn't, it it didn't occur to me. But take me through the casting process and and I went, because I want to share something with you that's a fascinating thing uh, we'll talk about uh, after is that. Something a lot of people don't know about me is like when I was in New York, mm-hmm. I, I loved going to Harlem to the Uptown Comedy Club to watching the African American comics. I was like, I literally was like, a, I, when I went there, it was like I was like a line of cocaine on a black album cover. I was the only guy there, but I loved it. I felt comfortable. It was honest comedy, and I loved working with uh, urban artists. You know, I I represented Chappelle from when he was eighteen and. And there would be a lot of people would come to me and they'd, you know, say, I want to meet with you. And I remember one day I got a call from this guy. I think his last name was Imes. Uh, and um, it was Monique's brother. And he said, I'd like to set up a meeting between me and my uh, my sister, I, th- I think. And, and I didn't know anything about her. And there wasn't any internet where you could look at back then or that you could do research on somebody. And it was just... And I remember she walked in and she was dressed like in, in a black and leopard outfit with leopard shoes and a leopard collar. And and she was like a Zoftic woman, which in, 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 in for everybody who's not Jewish means a portly or a little a little heavy set, uh, but but all like you know, put in the right places. And she sat down, and she was like a 70s sitcom star. There was something about her that I just felt like. And I said to her, I said, I said, you are going to be a huge, huge star. There's something about you that this, this amazing thing about you that when you walk in the room, it's, it's, it's really special, and people are going to rally around you. And I just remember saying to her and her brother, I said, I said, the only thing you ever have to worry about in this business is beating yourself. Because if you can just stay the way you are in your persona and do whatever, you you know, you can tell you got what it what it takes to, to do whatever you're gonna do. And I'll never forget that meeting because every time I see her, she always hugs me and reminds me of that moment, similar to your moments mm-hmm. like you had with Lee, where you just knew that somebody was gonna do something. But we're gonna talk about Monique in a second, because I wanna talk about like how the casting process was for that role. And for those of you who don't know out in the world, when you're casting a film, normally there's a breakdown that goes out, um, which talks about the film, the producers, it has the roles that you're looking for, the age ranges, what diversity, if they want a, a white actor or actress, uh, an African American, uh, what type or whatever. And the breakdown goes out and all the theatrical agencies in Hollywood and in New York, sometimes in Chicago, um, they submit. <clears throat> now, back then, uh, the process was just starting where with digital submissions, but it wasn't fully there yet. 
And for casting directors and who you hire as your casting director and the director, you get boxes and envelopes and like it's 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 madness. It's like it's like you there are envelopes you don't you, you don't even open. You can't even open them all because they come from Ed's agency, and you're just not going to open that. You might open CAA or William Morris. You're getting calls from people because they want to be involved in something, but they don't necessarily want to be involved with things that don't have a lot of money. And so you can't get the big stars. So what you have to do is find people who are extraordinary artists that aren't big stars that you believe could be big stars. And so take me through the casting process for Monique's role and what were the kind of people that were submitted when it came down to the end? Who, was there anybody close to what she could do? And, and, and was there a decision to be made one way or the other? And, and how did that come about? And then with the other roles as well? Well, for that particular role, he always knew it was going to be Monique. They had worked together on Shadow Boxer, and she, he knew right from the start she was the one to play the mom. So there weren't other, because no. what, what normally happens is with a director who's putting something together, he might have his choice, but agents are very, very persistent. And they will call and they say, I know you got Monique. I know you want her. But will you just see this person for five minutes and let them see if they do a little bit better? Well, Billy Hopkins um, was our casting director, who's amazing. Yes. And he really believed in what Lee wanted. I mean, we were all he I just I think Lee had such a clear vision for this film. It was impossible to go against the grain. You know, we just all wanted what he wanted. Got it. So Monique, Monique was set. Monique was in. Mariah Carey set. Yeah. Who else was set? Well, no, actually, Mariah, we casted her late. We had, you know, I remember he, we were in talks with Madonna at one point to play that role. A lot of different... Lee has an incredible network of actors that all want to work with him. I'll never forget, we went to the fundraiser at Oprah's house before he really knew Oprah. And we sat at her table, but she didn't really speak to us the whole time. But I remember uh, a number of very A-list African-American actors who would come up to Lee going, please win me an Oscar, put me in anything. And I would just look at him like, really? Like people just throwing themselves at him. And this was before he had even, well, he had directed Shadowboxer, which did not do well, but people want to work with him. He just has something in him. And I remember being really impressed by that. But also he has a knack for um, never casting the the prototype or stereotypical person in the role that he has. He opens it up for white black, whatever, Asian, um, changes the age range. I mean, he's really open about casting. But Monique was always his choice for that role. And then Gabby, you know, who ends up playing Precious, uh, that was different. Who was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, she was um, a random There couldn't have been audition. a lot of people out there with her type. No, we d the the crazy thing is we had an open casting because there wasn't really anyone. We had a couple people in mind, both Disney kids, um, both who could, were not allowed to play the role. Um, I remember we talked to Raven Simone, which would have been obviously an, a very interesting choice, but she, her people didn't want her to do it. Um, I'm trying to think who else. A couple Disney stars that we looked at, but otherwise, I remember Lee and I were um, on a boat together because Lee and I and my husband used to travel and do some fun things together. Um, and he showed me the audition tape of Gabby. Where was she from? 
uh, Harlem. And she grew up a block away from where we shot. And her mother is a famous subway singer. So the a New York underground. Um, and somebody had said, you got to go out. Her, you know, obviously, that's this is a big movie for that area. Everybody knew about it. And how many things had she ever done before None, nothing this she was actually zero are you ready for this uh she was an operator for a sex phone um what do you call it she she didn't have sex you know she was a phone sex a operator phone sex operator she'd connect the people together i always think of those old women doing okay i'm gonna unzip your pants well now she didn't she... do that part she connected people. oh she was the connector yeah she was the connector but it, it's funny if you it, if you close your eyes and you talk to gabby you think she's a valley girl nothing nothing like her character and then you realize when you know gabby as a human being how good of an actress she is and she has been successful. I mean, she's been working ever since Precious, and she's done great projects. She's on Ryan Murphy's show now. She did Laura Linney's show, The Big C. Um, always working. I mean, that girl is just a professional. Great work and uh, calm and no drama no. translate into lots of work. Yes. There's not a lot of really talented people who are nice and calm and don't create problems that aren't working right now. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. And so and so, where and how mm-hmm. did the components of Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey come in in the process and why? Well, they came in after we won Sundance. They actually had nothing to do with making the film. Um, and Lionsgate brought them in as sort of a sweetener to their deal to distribute the movie. And my husband and I... So they I, just gave them points to put did. their name on it. They did. Um, and, you know, I think it took... My husband's a really smart man, and I think we had to put our egos aside because for the time being before the Oscar nominations came out and we actually were nominated for Oscars as producers, people really thought Oprah and Tyler made the movie. And so I remember sitting on the international press um, line in between Lee and Oprah and people asking her directly, how was it to make the movie? And I think that had to have been a hard position for her and absolutely a difficult position for me. Did she look in and say, I didn't make the movie, this woman made the movie? No, she did not, but Tyler Perry did. And so, um, but I have to say, without Oprah and her voice and her ability to spread a message to millions of people, we never would have had the impact we did. So I... I'm grateful and thankful for her involvement. And without her, we couldn't have done what we did. What's also is when you do a deal, if, if you're listening or you're a part of our audience, is that when you're a producer and you do a deal and you put money in, there's a deal that you make. And the deal that you make is this. And it changes and it varies and no two deals are the same at all. But normally, for whatever percentage of the money of the budget you put in, after the money is paid back or whatever, you normally get your dollar, your first dollars out of what you're supposed to get back. Now, some producers will do it where they'll say, hey, for every dollar that comes back, you take your percentage and we'll take our percentage. But a lot of times what you try to do as a producer who's also financing is you want to get the first dollar out. You don't want to wait or split your money up. Mm -hmm. You want to get it out first. But then when a deal is made with Oprah and Tyler Perry, sometimes as a producer, not only you have to put your ego aside, 
but there is only so much in the back end. Well, that was there. from Lionsgate side. So we said that's fine. So in other words, they were paid out of Lionsgate yes, situation, were. which mm-hmm. is great. Okay, that was good for you then. Yeah, no, it was great for us because we were deciding between, you know, four different companies that wanted the movie. And I think when they said Oprah and Tyler, we're like, yeah, um, both of them are, you know, they really have a following. Yeah, and they, and they have very different followings. Now, I, before before I get back to uh, the Monique stuff, which I want to <laughs> talk about... Um, I'm always uh, blown away by by films that are are so uh, cutting edge and dark and deal with flawed characters. Um, this movie uh, did fantastic. It was you know whatever the budget ended up being inflated to, whatever it might have been inflated mm-hmm. to, the movie grossed. Uh, at the theaters, I believe, uh, over $50 million. And then overseas worldwide, mm-hmm. even though there's not a real worldwide audience for this kind of movie, I believe it made a significant amount yeah, of millions did. beyond that. And then there was uh, still DVD was still mm-hmm. popular then and VOD. So it's made a significant amount of money. Um, but what is it about these kind of movies that really, really like, you know, like they'll be like, for instance, the hangover, you got Mike Tyson punching Zach Galifianakis. It's $300 million, 400 worldwide. You have like, you know, Will Ferrell doing, you know, a character of Anchorman that's doing this. Why do you think the stories that are so gut wrenching rarely make the kind of money that are like, literally people are like this is insanity like why is it that when you make a commitment to do a movie with an inspirational message it's very rare when it makes money and when it does make money there are huggable and lovable characters around it that can like the blind side there's huggable and lovable characters around the dysfunction that that made that a hundred million dollar movie in Precious, what was fascinating about Precious, uh, and I, I share this a lot in this podcast, not one character that I found in that movie was huggable and lovable. Not even Mariah Carey, who was trying to help, was huggable and lovable. So I think sometimes that's the key, is that if you don't have a character in anywhere that gives any kind of, like, hope and i know what you're saying there is hope in the movie and the movie is about hope and the movie is about that you can carry on and persevere but at the end of the movie you still have the thought in your mind that you know just because there's this is happening it's not over the nightmare is not over and and for me I, I love the movie, uh, and I'm not just saying that to to say it because you're here. It it really fucked me up, and it really uh, damaged me, and it it made me. I'm embarrassed to say this, but it made me not always want to go see a movie like that again because I want to. I I think I want to leave the theater when I go. Me when I finish my popcorn, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm the kind of person in this world that doesn't always want to go to a movie and literally have my stomach twisted into a balloon animal when I leave. Maybe I just want to go and just, you know, see the good guy win in the end and and know that the bad guy's dead. 
Or, well, and that's or, why those movies are doing so well. Because people, <laughs> there are many people out there like you. And so, but you decided to get involved with something with your husband where you knew there was no, the, the, the odds were, or the history behind all movies like this are that they don't make kachillions of dollars and oftentimes they don't, uh, you know, Boys Don't Cry was an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the budget was probably $2 million. But again, if you look at the numbers, didn't really do that well. Monsters Ball did very well, won an Academy Award, and I don't think it broke $100 million. Maybe it did at the end after it won. But the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, the movie Monster, uh, Patty Jenkins was a guest on it. I mean, if you look at the you know after it won she won the academy award it did something what do you think that is like do you think it's just the the world is like that or and why did you want to rally because i'm sitting across from you and you even hold the mic like a rock star it's unbelievable (laughs) um but i'm sitting across from you and you don't give the appearance of somebody who has i'm not saying there might not be a darkness about you because like i said when shit happens early on, it mm-hmm. carries through and you want to, you know, it, it carries through. So there is that part of you when I'm across from you that is like, okay, some shit happened here. Mm-hmm. But I still don't know why you and your husband rallied around movie, a movie like that that was so, uh, so dark and so powerful like that when you could have rallied around any kind of movie. Well, I think that... Um there's two pieces to it. One, we go back to uh, the book Push. And that character, Precious, was a, a combination of like 10 of Sapphire's students. And what's interesting about that is within those 10 students, or it could have been nine, I remember her telling me this, um, each experience is something that probably most of the 10 you know, students, we, there's got to be an experience that Precious had that we could identify with. And without going into my, my personal darkness, I mean, I absolutely identified with parts of that movie. And I think there were a lot of other people. I mean, I can tell you being in Utah at Sundance, we had social workers, white social workers who worked with white um, patients who said this movie changed our life because again the the messages were universal and I think that's what we saw and in addition to that Lee is that person Lee comes from a, a very dark and um, stressful upbringing and to hear him with this vision of telling the story it you knew it was authentic I mean honestly the universe had a plan for this film and if you, we said today we're going to make this movie over with a different director, I don't believe it could have ever achieved the success it did. It was just the cards lined up and somebody much bigger than all of us had a plan for this film. And that's kind of how these things happen, you know? Yeah, and so and so you're on the set and, and the performances are incredible and, and Monique is... is is giving performances in the dailies for those of you who uh, uh, are audience who the dailies are the a lot of times you in the old days you just go into a screening room and you, they'd show you the takes of each thing now they just give you the dvds or the links so you're watching the dailies of monique and and it's you're like holy shit this is this is insanity 
and uh, this the, he's getting the kind of performance out of her that's just you know bone crushing. Wendy is start noticing though that you know with not we're talking off screen that there's something you're going to have to contend with later, or you never notice that. Oh, with her specifically. Yes. Um, well, huh. the difference between Monique and Gabby is that Monique is that person. So she wasn't acting for me. I mean, it's she was being herself. And so Gabby, you know, for me, gets all the kudos because she was acting. Um, I'm very grateful for Monique. But, you know, comics, as you probably know, can be the darkest people on the planet, which was the genius of Lee to see that. Because honestly, when he said she was going to play that part, I was like, are you kidding, Monique? Like, I had seen her on a VH1 show, like a cheesy show called, oh gosh, what was like Charm School. And I was like, you're going to put this girl who's hosting a cheesy VH1 show? And he he saw that who she was and maybe knew that from the previous movie. Um, I knew when we were filming that she was dark. She really didn't um, want to interact with myself. She kept to her qu- very quiet. Um, so she treated you like Chris Albrick? Yeah. Okay. She was not nice. No, she was not nice throughout the entire project. And it's really not a surprise for me to have seen that she really hasn't done anything because you know, when you, her demons are so dark and I just try to go to that happy place. And well, go. I remember at the Academy Awards, you know, again, you know, people they're asking her, how come you didn't show up for the press? How come you didn't do the press? To, oh, talk to my husband. He's up there at the podium. And I think that ended up being her downfall. I mean, I, we, I knew, listen, I saw it. Lee had a different relationship with her. Um, but couldn't he advise her and say, hey, he tried, listen. he tried and she really didn't, you know, interesting thing about the Oscars is that we all, all of us who were nominated, we sat at tables and we all traveled to the same award shows. So the, we all think that everybody's tables all happy and everybody loves each other. And as we go through the award season, up to the Oscars, we all know that every table is just fighting. There's the actors hate the directors, the directors hate the producers, and that's how it was at our table. I mean, everyone was fighting at our table. And everyone, you- Lee and I, her, Monique, and the only people that really got along the whole time were Gabby and myself. Why were you all fighting? Oh, various millions of reasons that people end up not liking each other at the end. Now, after the experience, we all sort of made up, I mean, you know, what's weird about life is that when you're in your darkest moments, it's really difficult. But also when you are experiencing extreme success, it's very stressful. And I think nobody knew what we were up for. And, you know, all of us, it, it just was hard. And, and it was so nice to hear that Hurt Locker had the same thing. Everyone was going through the same thing we were. So this is an interesting thing because I think... I've never, I never knew that those tables, those big round tables or the seating at the Academy Awards, Mm -hmm. that people, it's possible that the people were not getting along. Oh, oh, terrible. Yeah. And, and, and what you're saying is, is that so, so in, in huge levels of success, Mm -hmm. so when the first uh, award, I believe it was Monique is the first one. Mm -hmm. Uh, that comes early on in the show. Mm-hmm. So 
Her name is announced. Mm-hmm. She wins the Academy Award. You're around each other. After she wins, are people getting along? No. No. Um, And she... You know, I mean... And I... And... It's just hard. It really is hard. I mean... Now, are you the kind of person that's like, you feel this thing inside, like, I just don't even want to be near you. But were you the type of person that after she won, you went up to her, you hugged her, and you said, look, I know that we haven't felt rosy, but I'm 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 proud of you and I'm proud of what you accomplished. Or were you like, fuck it, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to be here. There were no words spoken to her at all. I mean, we, we had no, I mean, obviously we're thankful for her performance, but she never spoke to us the entire evening. No. And no one went up to her from your side and said, congratulations. Oh, we did. Absolutely. So you did speak. Well, we did say that, but it was very like, I mean, we were all clapping and everybody was happy, but, um, and we never had choice words. I mean, there was no um, negativity exchange. She just really didn't want to have anything to do with Gary and I. So, um, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I don't hold grudges, but I can see how she would have trouble getting other jobs because I know how she is. But you know what? That's the entertainment business. Creative people are difficult people. And I've learned this as I've been here a long time. So you're a nice person. So why do you want to be in this crazy business if you know that the greatest moment of your professional life Mm -hmm. was also the shittiest moment of your professional life? Why would you want to be in a business like that? Well, because it wasn't. Because I looked. What do you mean it wasn't? We saw the bigger picture. What's we the saw bigger picture? The, the bigger re- picture is we had a film that was nominated and won the Oscars. We had a film that made money that shouldn't have. That's all that mattered. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you. Okay. I don't think that's all that matters. Well, I mean... I think relationships and figuring out a way to navigate in this crazy world... So here you have a movie yeah. about relationships mm-hmm. that have soured in a horrible way, and then... The producer's table mm-hmm. is about relationships that have soured in a horrible way. But uh, all of which really came around, and it was, you know, like I said, there were other tables having the similar experiences. I can say this, that, that I will never work with Monique again, and I wish her the very best. And that's it. I mean, we move on, because we all won. Everyone won. And you do have to learn to be a bigger person and suck it up, and it, sometimes people don't like you. You can't... You know, that's the thing in this town. People talk about you and, you know, you you put yourself out there. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Some people sometimes people like you. Sometimes people don't. And you just, you know, that's it. That's all you can do. Well, this is where I think you've uh, (laughs) you've learned an important lesson. and I'll tell you why, because you shared with me before we came on that now you're writing your own stuff and you're directing your own stuff. Mm hmm. And when you write your own stuff and you direct your own stuff and you finance your own stuff, you don't have to answer to anybody. Well, actually, the um, the movie I'm working on, Castro's Daughter, uh, other people are financing, which Got is it. nice. I'm just the director. Which um, is which is the greatest compliment in the world. 
yeah, we'll see how that that movie is still under development right now. But what's interesting is that but, you're, yeah. you're letting this is and, and again, we talked about the financing mm-hmm. thing and what you should do if you're an artist, but you're not in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated that you're allowing somebody to finance the movie mm-hmm. because if, if, if you could yourself and mm-hmm. this is why I'm fascinated by that. Right. Because as you know. Every time somebody writes a check to you, mm-hmm. you lose control. Right. So you killing yourself writing this script. Mm-hmm. I didn't write Castro's Daughter. No, but the new one. The one, the action movie. Killing yourself yeah, yeah. writing the script. You're going to kill yourself directing it, which for those of you out there, to direct a film, it's at least a year commitment mm-hmm. of your life, of mm-hmm. from cradle to grave. And writing it probably to get it right is mm-hmm. probably at least another year. And if you're prolific, maybe it's six months. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a team. I had somebody helping me. We did it together. How long did it take? Um, I'd say, well, we're still working on it now because we're on. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> yeah. So I would say a year. All right. So two years and you got that going and then you decide you're going to have, you're going to give up some of the control <laughs> where somebody can tell you what to do. Or I tell you what not doing. I really don't. Why? I don't know because I decided that I want to surround myself with people that have been in the business longer than me. Um, I don't. This movie is completely different. It's like a four quadrant studio movie. It's it's a movie about the military. Um, it's a movie about a true CIA story. Um, and even even if a studio said, "Listen, we love this movie. We want to, we want to put another director on there," I think I'd be open to it. Um, I feel like to make it in this town and to for myself. I just need to be open to not being so selfish with my projects because we did a movie called Judy Moody and we tried to do everything ourselves and it was the biggest mistake of my career. We lost a ton of money doing it. And the funny thing is a studio wanted to take it over and spend an extra year, you know, helping, um, promote it before they actually put it out and we were like no we can do it ourselves look at we did precious and we learned a huge lesson so i feel like today i'm open to changing and being different well, but the directors who write are the directors who win that's i know that's sure. why i encourage you <laughs> do not leave this project as a director no matter who wants okay, to do okay. it okay i won't I won't. Because that's your, you know, you're an artist. You know, yeah. What's great about what you're doing is you've always been an artist. <laughs> you've always had that in you. From when you were five going to the set of MASH, you knew. You know, even from when you <laughs> were in a situation with the clothing line, yeah. you had a vision. You were a visionary. You created something that had been never been done before that people copied and wanted you for. See, this is why you have to come in my pocket. <laughs> oh my god and then you got into the film business yeah. in a way the only way you knew how at the time to make to take a shortcut which was to finance when i say shortcut it's not yeah. a negative thing it's no. like the leapfrog over everybody else i gotta get in and i'm gonna pay for my college education it's true it's absolutely i'm gonna true. get in then when you got in you navigated and created some great uh relationships but also found out that no matter how great a navigator you were some relationships were just never meant to be but you still were a chameleon and figured out a way to, to uh, as they say, to uh, get out of the way and let artists be artists, whether they're great or they're not great. That paid off. You could have tried to navigate. You could have tried to get in the person's face and say, hey, let's create a better relationship 
and go at them every day. But in your mind, instinctually, it's like, if I do that, I might get into their head. They might not have as great a performance. I'll do a disservice to Lee, the film, mm -hmm. and the public. You go forward, and then you realize you're, 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 you really are an artist, and you say, you know what? These people writing these things, I can do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy Sid Field's book, Screenplay, and I'm going to look at it, and figure it's it true. out and get it. Did you buy it? No, yeah. but I got final draft and there I figured out how to do it. And you figured it out and yeah. you went ahead and well, did it. Well, as a director, it's funny because, well, I realized when I directed my first movie, um, you're rewriting stuff all the time. So I really need to, I, I, I realized you have to hone that craft in order to be a better director because sometimes the night before the day of, scenes don't work and you have to be witty and smart. And be able to, you know, write your own dialogue sometimes to make something work. So, you know, it's um, it's a learning process. And I feel like I just I need to just keep doing it. I love TV, too. Like, I would love to do TV. You will. You'll, yeah, do, you'll, do, you'll do anything you want to do. I'm in so, your pocket, oh, remember. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. A few more things before okay. I let you ride off into the sunset. Sure, sure, sure. Tell me one of your greatest holy shit moments. Like, just like you tell a story and whatever it might be, the shortest or a story that no one would fucking believe how crazy or amazing or great it was. Or it might have been a moment on a set or something that happened or whatever that that people, you know, would would be the highlight chapter of your book. I feel the fact that, you know, so early on in our my career I was lucky to you know be able to go to the Oscars and have a film I mean b being at the Oscars it was so surreal to be sitting there with so many talented people who had worked some people their entire life to get there and so I think I think that was a, a very um, important aha moment is that you can have a dream um and sometimes your dream doesn't realize because there's a bigger dream for you and that you can never dream big enough. I mean, who would have thought that I would be sitting at the Oscars with a film, never have been in film school or living in Colorado? And so I think, um, you know, that's a big deal to achieve something like that and realize at that moment when you're looking around how blessed and lucky you are. And that even Gabby, we, we talked with Gabby. I mean, I remember before we, we were making Precious and she was like, Sarah, one day Zach Afron's going to text me because he is going to know what a big star I am. And, you know, here she is. Nobody knows who she is. And she's overweight. And we're, you know, still riding public transportation. And and I knew it was going to be right. But anybody who had been watching us would be like, you two are nuts. <laughs> sure enough, you know, precious. She gets nominated. And Zac Efron's texting her. <laughs> I was like, wow. I mean. Again, it goes back to the post-it notes in Dane Cook's true. office. And you got to have a vision as an artist. Or even if you you're do. in any kind of job, whatever job you're in, you got to figure out how to have that vision of where you're going to be and what's going to happen. You have you know, to dream big. Cause it, dream big. It's like you, you, when you told that story, I just thought about, you know, Jimmy Fallon and how he said, look, you know, here I am taking over the Tonight Show. People ask me, was it a dream? It's like I used to ask my parents if I could stay up and watch Johnny Carson. And, you know, there's been less talk show hosts than there have men who've walked on the moon. And here I am. I, I'm, I'm getting to do something that I... I you know, was always a dream of mine, and, and now it's happening. It's a reality. Yeah. All true. right. So let's keep going here. Okay. 
what's your biggest disappointment and your proudest moment um, professionally? Well, I think my biggest disappointment was our kids' film, which was made with such love because it was my daughter's favorite book series. And I thought, there's no way we can lose on this. It's it's the best book series where we had such a great time um, filming the movie and it was made with love. It really was. And it just was a really hard process. Making a movie for kids that has a had a girl's title was a, a, a big hurdle for us. And people said it to me and I didn't listen. So if you'll notice all the new Disney movies, they're never named after a girl. They switch the names to be gender, gender neutral, which is very interesting. And we also made a- Give me an example of one they switched to be gender. Every single one. Frozen. That was a, you know, look, go back. I think it was Rapunzel. They changed to every girl's movie they, that has a lead girl. They now changed from the original character name to a, a gender neutral name. That must be why Dora doesn't have her own movie. Well, <laughs> it's true. And people did say that to me and I didn't really listen. Um, so it was a big disappointment, I think, also knowing that um, we couldn't do it ourselves, that you really need to partner with people in this town, which is a blessing, too. Like like I said to you, that's kind of how I want to go forward is just partner with people. You know, we all need each other. And the craziest thing is people who won an Oscar yesterday still needs you tomorrow. Uh, everybody is clamoring in this town to continue to make it because just because you were hot yesterday you know, you're lukewarm tomorrow. You still have to keep going. And your proudest moment, I, I, I would imagine yeah. it, it has to be, you know, being at the Oscars, but, you know, beyond that, mm -hmm. what was your proudest moment? Well, I just think having a project that you believed in from the beginning, realize. Um and and I would say that about any film that did well that you what you know you started that's just a great achievement to and I love making movies because there's a start and a finish and it's very gratifying and it can be scary too because you know especially um sometimes you win sometimes you lose and even the studio heads will tell you that I mean I talk to people all the time it's like that's why studios win because they make 20 movies and two make money enough to pay for the other ones so it's being in this business is really hard, but it's so gratifying to tell a story that millions of people see and hopefully their lives are changed by it. And so that's, that's the best thing you can ask for. Got it. Uh, almost there. Tell me the challenges of working with somebody who you're in love with. And you have to go to work every day with them or work around them every day. And you also have to go home at night and have a personal relationship and a fulfilling life. Well. How can you keep, how did you, how have you kept that wonderful relationship together for 16 years? Well, I'll tell you because my husband and I work at different capacities. He's more the uh, banker, executive looking at the macro picture. I'm there in the trudges, in the trenches, um, doing the day-to-day. -day. And so it's a nice balance. The time where it is stressful is when he, he's essentially the banker and we're, you know, on set and we know we're running over budget and it's like, I got to go home and, you know, talk to my banker and he and I, it's hard, especially if you lose. Oh my gosh. I mean, ooh, that's tough. 
And and I think I'm tougher on myself. I mean, he's just like proud of me all the time, which I'm so lucky to have that. And I'm sitting here, oh, we, you know, if if it's not perfect, it's hard on me. But I think he's, you know, he he's not a Hollywood guy, really, and he operates on a completely different level. I mean, he thinks this is just like a hobby. So none of this bothers him. True serum in your veins. Mm -hmm. Let's pretend that uh, your movie producing career with your husband is like Las Vegas. Okay? It is. (laughs) Would you say that you're up would you say you're breaking even or would you say you're down Mm. i think i think we're i i can't tell yet because it's it's probably close to breaking even if not losing a little got it yeah it's like vegas exactly (laughs) but you know what the truth is and we talk about this um as well it's if you're choosing projects where you're changing the world with your message I mean, you can't, you can't always reach that many people with philanthropy. So I kind of feel like if it's important enough message and you lose all your money, but you've at least changed people's lives, I, I got to say, I'm willing to make that bet. Tell me a email you got, an email you got, mm-hmm. or a letter, mm-hmm. or somebody who stopped you, and if you can share the most impactful thing anybody ever said to you about Precious that sort of after they walked away, you sort of sat down and you were like, it just really took your breath away. Well, I have I have two. I have one funny, quick uh, rhetorical statement that my daughter made, um, if that rhetorical is the right word, I don't know. But she said she watched um, Precious before it was released. And she came to me and she said, Mom, and she's young. That is absolutely the worst movie I've ever (laughs) seen in my life. How could you have made that movie? She hated it. So that was kind of. um, (laughs) How old was she at the time? She was like 11. She was like, your movie sucks. (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of hard. But then I had, um, I mean so many people come to me and you know since Gabby and I are still friends and we'll go to dinner people always come up to us and you know with tears in their eyes saying your film changed my life and then I have friends again who said I couldn't watch your movie it was too intense too heavy um but I I know that we changed lives and that to me is like a legacy that you can't you can't buy it's just Amazing. And I know this is gratuitous. The biggest star at the Oscars that came up to you and said something to you about the movie. (gasps) Okay, well, it was a pre-Oscar party. And I was talking to Tom Hanks. This is very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And he, this is before we got nominated or anything. He said, I think you have the best movie of the year. And I was like, holy shit. Excuse my language. (laughs) I was like, I I went back to my husband because he wasn't there. And I said, Tom Hanks said, we had the best movie of the year. And I was so excited. We had a lot of those moments. I mean, literally, the greatest thing about 
well, one of the greatest things about making that movie too was that I met every single person in this town I ever wanted to meet in the span of six months. <laughs> and another gratuitous question, because I think it's fun, because okay. we all dream about going to the Academy Awards yeah. and being there and knowing what it's all about. And always, you know, when you there's always somebody you meet who's a celebrity, and after you meet them, you're like, "Wow, I didn't, I didn't know they look like that, or I didn't know they, they, I didn't know they were the." Mm-hmm. I remember when I first met Al Pacino, I was like, I mean, "God, I can't believe I'm going to the set." One of my clients was uh, working with him, Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. I got to the set, and you know, like where's Al Pacino? And I'm looking around, and it's like, okay, I'm looking down because he's literally like five foot five or something like that you don't these people are bigger than life yeah, yeah. and you don't understand that so it must have been such an amazing thrill just being able to meet all these people and seeing wow this is what they're really like in the flesh but then soon enough well i mean it, it's kind i i i'm so happy to be working in this industry but the longer i'm here the more i realize how regular all the people I put on a pedestal when I was in Colorado and had no idea. I mean, I remember people jump over fences to meet celebrities. It cracks me up. And now, like, if you only knew how they were in real life, you would not be intrigued at all. Well, that's what I was hoping you'd say. Oh, I have so many stories that, I mean, I could never tell, but like, that would just blow your mind. People that were, you know, the biggest stars in the 80s that I know, that you would just be so embarrassed for them if you knew how they were in real life. And it's kind of, it's sad because one of the reasons why people get into this business is because they think it's so exciting. But when you really get on the inside, it's just like every, we all do the same things. We get up in the morning, we drink our coffee, we do, you know, we work out, we have children. And so when you see somebody that was on the big screen, you're like, wow, they're amazing. And then you're at their house and they're cleaning the cleaning products from under your their sink and you're watching them going whoa they are just regular people and and actually i would say 10 times more flawed than regular people you know artists are truly head cases and and there's a few you know one of my best friends is eva longoria and i cannot say enough amazing things about her but she is a rarity in this town this town is you know and but creative people again are genius and they're flawed as we all are and so you just appreciate it and be thankful that people in this town are so interesting and full of life it's true and i always say that the the degree um i guess that you're going to be successful in this business is the degree that you're able to hide the flaws and so my last question to you is this um knowing that you've worked with a lot of amazing artists and you are an artist as well, and you're also an executive, what advice would you have for the young person growing up in a town somewhere or who's a teenager or in college and and they're an artist and they want to be able to be able to make their mark and, and be a part of a film like the kind of films you've made? What advice do you have for those young artists to, to make it in the business? And what advice do you have for the young executive that wants to be in the film and television business or the young financier or somebody who really wants to make their mark as well on the other side? 
Well, you know, learn the craft as much as you can. I mean, if you want to be a director, you you better be going to film school. I mean, yes, I learned to be a director by doing it, but that's not the easiest way. You need to have, you know, pack yourself with the tools needed to understand the craft Um, because you don't want to have to go back and learn it later. If you want to be in the film business, the business side, you know, go to business school because those same rules that apply at Microsoft apply in this business. And if you know that you'll navigate so much better. It's the it's different business, but same rules. It is about making money. But then, you know, the difference is in this business, you do have to think with your heart as well as your brain. And so sometimes things on paper don't make sense, but then end up making sense. So if you have a gut about something, you do have to go for it. You know, you have to. But try to arm yourself with um, the information. But don't ever let the information stop you from pursuing your dreams. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Sarah, amazing. You You are so great. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you came here. And uh, this is going to be very impactful for a lot of people. Good. I hope so. All right, this is Barry Katz signing off with another episode of Industry Standard. And as always, if you like the show, uh, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.